0: Good morning, guys. Good morning. We are at mile marker 33 today of a 40-week journey we've been taking through the New Testament. And uh, there's this passage we're going to look at today. It comes out of this New Testament book. It's called Acts. And we're going to look at the first half of Acts 9. And what it is, is it is two interlocking stories, all right? It is two interlocking stories about two people. One is named Paul and the other is named Ananias. And, and what's so cool about this is, is if we look at this story about this guy named Paul and this guy named Ananias, there is really something powerful in this story that I think God has to say to our stories here as well. So there are Bibles in like chairs, just kind of scavenge, you'll find one. And I really want to invite you to follow along with me in this. We're going to key in at Acts 9, and uh, here's where the storyline picks up. It says this. Now, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. All right, here's what's happening. Last week, we ended with the story of a guy named Stephen. And a guy named Stephen came face to face with God, and, and Jesus just he got a hold of him. And, and he started just sharing what he discovered and sharing what he learned and, and starting to share among, among the Jews that he, he was traveling with in a circle at Jerusalem. And if you were with us, the way the story ends is they grab the guy, they drag him out on the street, and they literally start just pummeling him with stones until he dies. In the midst of this, Stephen is just like looking up and going, God, take me. God, forgive them. God, don't hold this against them. Something very much like Jesus on the cross. And it says that there was a young guy named Saul, and he was cheering the people on. He was cheering the people on that were throwing the stones. And now it picks up again. And it says, meanwhile, this Saul guy, his bloodlust wasn't satisfied he didn't get enough and it said he was still breathing out these murderous threats against the lord's disciples so he goes to the high priest and he asks for letters to the synagogue in damascus which is nowhere near where he lives it's nowhere like near ground zero where the action is happening he's so just like propelled with this zeal that he's like you know i want to root this out from every corner of the globe give me letters give me authorization let me go to damascus So that if any there who belonged to the way, it's the way of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, be found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And it says, as he nears Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. Now get up and go. Go into the city, and you'll be told what to do. So the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. You know what it reminds me of? You ever see those, like, the video footage from like the 1950s when they were doing like nuclear test, like nuclear explosion tests off like the Bikini Islands and stuff like that. And you ever see these? And you always have like those those soldiers there, right? Like they had those guinea pigs out there to see what would happen. And whenever the blast goes off, what do all the soldiers do? Don't look at it, right? Turn away. Because you know what happens when you look into a nuclear blast? When the bomb goes off and you go, oh, you know, like that? All right, this is what happens, okay? So, they get him up off the ground. He opens his eyes. He could see nothing. They lead him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days, he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. Okay, this can be a bit confusing, because what Acts 9 is about is the interlocking story of a guy named Paul and a guy named Ananias. But if you've been traveling with me on this, you see we're not really talking about a guy named Paul yet. We're talking about a guy named Saul, all right? Probably the most important like bit of info to catch if you're going to follow this at all today, Paul is Saul. This Saul guy is the exact same guy as Paul. This is the same Paul who ended up writing half of what we now call The New Testament. This is the same Paul who devoted his life to traveling throughout the Roman Empire spreading this good news about Jesus, which means you might be sitting there going, wait a minute, wait a minute. It says he's breeding out murderous threats against the disciples. It's like he's cheering on people when they kill Christians. It's like he's going out to take a first-hand role in it. You're telling me this is the same guy who wrote half the New Testament? Yeah because what this is a story uh, what this is a story about is what happens when Jesus just radically gets hold of someone paul will describe this story later this incident later as nothing short of a complete life transformation i'm talking complete 180 here We're nothing short of of something that could only be described as conversion now Who is this guy? Let's talk about him a little bit. Who is this guy named Saul slash Paul that's bent on this quest and Jesus comes face to face with? All right, Saul was not born in Jerusalem. He's from a city called Tarsus. And Tarsus is in a region called Cilicia. And that might not be interesting to you, but what's significant about it is that it is not in Israel. It's out in what's called Asia Minor of the day. It's present-day Turkey. And why this is significant is this is deep into the heart of Gentile country. All right? Saul comes from a place that is deep into the heart of the Roman Empire, not at the hotbed of Jewish activity there in Jerusalem. However, Saul is a rising star. I mean, this is like... Poster child prodigy of the Jewish faith all over the place. He'll he'll share his own biography in bits and pieces throughout his letters. Let me share one with you. It comes from Philippians chapter 3. He just drops this little hint, and he says this. He goes, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in, it says the flesh, it's kind of like in himself, okay? In his own creds, in his own resume. I have something more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. Do you get the significance of that? Pharisees were a sect among the Jewish people of the day who prided themselves, who devoted their lives to the quest of seeking God. They tend to get a bad name in the Gospels for a variety of reasons. But at its core, you can't miss this. The Pharisees would stop at nothing to give their lives to God. They'd stop at nothing to obey God. Their lives were consumed with following his will and his way. And it says, as for zeal, well, you know about how I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. You getting the gist of that? It's like he's saying, yeah, you know God's commands? I did them. Could you say that? That was the way of the Pharisee. And this guy saw this young man who was there cheering when they were stoning Stephen, was this prodigy that the leaders of the day were looking at. I mean, he trained under the superstar rabbi Gamaliel, which is like, that should just make you go, oh my gosh. I mean, this is like the Bono of the rock world, all right? I mean, he trained under people that, that it's like only one in a million get to even grace the presence of him, and this is Saul, a guy from humble beginnings that was a rising star that had promise and potential that was going to revolutionize the world. And God comes down, and he gets a hold of him. Now, this transformation, this utter transformation that, that Saul experiences becomes a pivot point in his life. It's interesting. A lot of people will say that at this point, Saul becomes Paul. Saul actually changes his name to Paul, to show that when he came face-to-face with Jesus, it made such a difference, it was such an about-face for him, it changed every aspect of who he was, that he even changed his name to reflect the fact that he, today in Christ, was a different person. And it's fascinating to track this out, because, see, in the Bible, names often mean something. Names often equal destiny. And Paul has a meaning too. Do you know what the word means? Talk about being born under a bad sign on this, all right? Humble, little. It might even be argued that you can translate it, the least of these. And it might come out of this idea that Paul had as he reflected back in his life. Look at this. One place he says this, here's a trustworthy saying, and it deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. I mean, is he just kind of being like, like overly self-deprecating, full of himself here? Like, you think you're a bad man, I'm worse. Is it just kind of that going on? Or is this guy, who by every definition could have been called a terrorist, reflecting back on his life and coming to terms with the things that he did, with the previous way of life that he had, and going, now in God, that's me. There is a God who saves the worst of sinners. There's a God who can save even a terrorist like me. And it was so revolutionizing for him that he even changed his name to the worst, the lowest, the least of these. And there's some who say that at this moment, this guy that it's called Saul becomes Paul to show this life change. But I think something more is going on instead. Because see, in the ancient world, it really wasn't uncommon for people to have more than one name. You got a middle name? No? Rough rough break, all right, I do. Um, I have more than one name. And in the ancient world, especially for Jews especially for Jews who were born outside of Israel, born in some some region of the Roman Empire, it was common for them to have a Jewish name and a Roman name, even from birth. Now, Saul is a good Jewish name. Saul is a good Jewish name, and it harkens back to another guy named Saul that you also come across in the Old Testament. You you know the story of of King Saul Saul? in the Old Testament, if not, sometime key, and it like picks up at 1 Samuel chapter nine, all right? And here's how the story goes. See, God takes his people of Israel out of Egypt, and Egypt is the superpower of the day. They're enslaved, they're oppressed, they're knocked down, and he comes in, he defeats the powers that be, and he leads them out into a promised land where they are gonna have untold, unspeakable freedom. Have you ever known some people, though, for whom too much freedom really wasn't a good thing. And so what happens with these people of Israel is they take this freedom and they use it in all the wrong ways. They use it to to, to reject God, to rebel against him, to just do their own thing, to fight with each other. And so God starts raising up these people that the Bible will call judges. Now, you can't think like a judge like in a court today. These are more like, these are more like your Stallones and your Schwarzeneggers. All right? These are like the one-man heroes who are going to fight for their people and gather them together. And he starts raising them up. And it's in the midst of this that the people of Israel go, yeah, but you know what? Everyone else has got a king. We want a king too. Now, this is kind of interesting because they have a king already. What would you do if you were the king? And everyone started going, we want a king. All right, doesn't make you feel too good, right? God said he was the king. But the people are going, no, we want a king. And so God gives in. God gives in. Do you realize that God will often give in? And I got a question for you. Does that bring you comfort or does that terrify you? And they call for a king. And so the story goes that there's this prophet, his name is Samuel. God comes to him. He says this. He says, I'm going to show you who this next king of Israel is going to be. And when Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, that's the man I spoke to you about. He'll govern my people. Saul answered, am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? Now, are you catching a connection between these two guys? Where is Paul from? What tribe? Benjamin. Where is Saul from? Which tribe? Benjamin. See, both the stories of Saul in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament have this very interesting trajectory where they seem to follow the same path. They both start in these humble beginnings. Paul is born in some outreach of the the Roman Empire. Some will even argue his father or his grandfather were probably slaves. Born to humble beginnings, born with a family name, little, small, least of these. That's a great one to pass on generation to generation. Just like Saul in the Old Testament. Who am I from the smallest one? And can you see almost this family in the first century world at the time of Jesus with this little baby named Paul? This mother and father with this this pride and joy of their life going, but we want another destiny for you. We want something greater. We're going to name you Saul. One of our own, one of our kin. He started from the same beginnings, but like him. Paul, we want you to be a rising star. We want you to go somewhere. We want you to make a difference. We want you to make an impact in this world and do something great. You can almost climb inside the mind of a parent going through something like this with their baby, with a family named Paul, who they call Saul, to indicate a destiny that they want that goes beyond their, their, their humble beginnings. And you can track the story of Paul. And you can track the story of Saul in the Old Testament. And you see that both of them come as rising stars. Saul in the Old Testament, he becomes king. He leads Israel to to safety and to victory. And then he's there at the height. Something happens. And I'm not fully sure how it worked, but something happens. Maybe the power went to his head. Maybe his ego starts to get too big. Maybe he just got comfortable. Maybe he just started to lose a certain sensitivity for God and for his way. But he starts to miss him, to ignore him, to do his own thing, to deny him, to reject him. And God comes to this first king called Saul. And he takes it away. He takes it away and he says, I'm going to give it to another king, one that you probably know. His name is David. Another one from humble beginnings. And it's at this point that, that Saul... He goes into like self destructive overdrive. He fights God, tries to fight to get it back. He ignores what God's calling him to do. He's starting to be filled with like resentment and hatred for this this guy named David. And even though it's meaning good for Israel, he'd rather like, despite, you know, he'd rather spite himself than embrace what God is doing. It starts getting so low that, that he starts sneaking off in the middle of the night. To go meet up with like witches and hovels and corners to see if they can raise like dead prophets from the past, to, to, to see if he can get wisdom or guidance or help from them. And I gotta tell you, if it comes to a, a place in your life where like you're the king and you're sneaking off in disguise in the middle of the night to go talk to dead people, life has hit a real low. All right? And you read the story of this guy, and when you think it can't self-destruct anymore, you see him throwing himself on his own sword and committing suicide. And I look at Paul, and I see this guy with the same life trajectory, this guy from humble beginnings, and he becomes this rising star. And there, when he's at his height, and he starts to twist things and turn things and go his own way, God lays him in the dirt. Because sometimes we just need to be smacked in the face with a two-by-four, don't we? And God takes him, and he lays him in the dirt, and he lays him flat, and there at that broken place becomes the most significant divergence between Saul and Paul. Because instead of fighting it, Paul humbles himself. He humbles himself and he repents. It means he turns to this new trajectory that God has laid out. And the result is he ends up becoming one of the most powerful influential people in all of human history. See, each of us here have the capacity to be a Saul or a Paul. And the question really comes down to when life lays you in the dirt, when circumstances come along and knock you down from your horse, or when God comes along and breaks you, Will you fight him and reject him and rebel? Or will you humble yourself under his hand and turn to a new direction that he might be laying out before you? Because the answer, guys, to that question right there, that's all the difference. Now, we said that Acts 9 is an interlocking story of two men, Paul And Ananias. Pick up with me at verse 10. Now it says in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas on straight street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And just, you know, by the way don't you just love it when God comes out with that kind of like clarity and detail? Oh my gosh. Because this guy is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Hold up. Lord, Ananias said, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority to get us May I just summarize this with the words, what are you thinking? But God says to Ananias, the Lord said, go, go. I hate it when God says that. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, which means if Ananias was feeling bad, he's feeling a little better by this point. So he goes to the house and he enters it. He places his hands on Saul and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained some strength. In the 1930s, there was a Lutheran pastor. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was alive and active right at the time that the Third Reich was starting to gain some serious power and traction. And seeing the handwriting on the wall of where his own country was going, Bonhoeffer fled from Germany and immigrated to the United States. And it was when he was in the United States that something happened. He got a vision or a prompting or his conscience struck him in some way or he started hearing the voice of God through what he was reading and and those who were reading it as well, realizing that God was telling him to go back into Germany to stand up for those people who were being brutalized by the hands of evil, to fight against and subvert in evil power, to grow and proclaim truth in the midst of darkness. And you know what he did? At the height of the Third Reich, he immigrates back into Germany. And he begins to write, and he begins to speak, and he begins to preach, and he begins to stand up for those who are being brutalized, and he begins to subvert the government that be, and he gets arrested, and he gets imprisoned. And 11 days before the fall of Berlin, he's executed at the hands of the Third Reich. Dietrich von Bonhoeffer wrote this, When God calls someone, he bids them to come and die. When God calls someone, he bids them to come and die. And I can't escape that story when I think about Ananias in Acts 9. Can you imagine what it's like for this guy? Could you imagine what it's like for this guy knowing this guy Saul is coming to get you? And God tells you to go to him because Ananias knew something. When God calls, he calls to sacrifice. He calls to danger. He calls and bids us to come and die. I think about how the early church came to terms with this and and grasp this see jesus calls all of us to be a witness just like ananias he calls us to be a witness to his goodness and his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and the early church because they spoke greek had a word for this thing we called witness do you know what this word is witness in greek it sounds like this martyr you ever hear that word because they learned something that, that, that when God calls us to witness, he often bids us to come and die. And I think of those stories of the early church, of how they would grasp this. You know, let me give you some examples. In the early church, in, in the time of the early Roman Empire, did you know this, that, that, that um, abortion was prevalent? It's not modern medical technology. They would do it then too. It usually was reserved only for those who were of means, who were wealthy, who were rich, because it was costly and it was dangerous and, and you really needed some, some special help along the way with it that went above and beyond what the average person could support. But they didn't want their child. They, that was it. The way most people did it, though, they didn't want that child. They would just carry it to full term. And after it was born, they'd go out to the garbage heap and they'd abandon it. And you know what those first Christians used to do? They didn't write petitions. They didn't picket Rome. They went out to the garbage heap. If They'd see a baby. They'd take it in as their own. Imagine this. You live in a three-bedroom house. You got six kids already. And you come home. It's like, hey, honey, we got another mouth to feed. Because they knew when God calls, he calls us to come and die to our own desires and plans and wishes. There's stories about how in early Rome, and in the empire, plagues would come. Incurable plagues would come and sweep through cities. And people would get word of it a few days in advance. It's coming. It's hit the town up the road. It's coming. And people would flee. The first outbreak of plague in their town, people would scatter. People would leave their wives, their kids, their husbands. The, civil, the administrative officials, the civil authorities, those people that were called to, to defend and protect those in the town would be the first to get out of Dodge and run off to their country villas because they weren't catching that plague. And you can read these stories about a certain group of people that would remain behind, these followers of the way, these, these Christians to minister to the forgotten, to put their hands on those who were dying, to help them in those final days, knowing that the plague that got them is probably going to get me too. And you know what? And he caught it and died. Think of the stories that when local persecutions would pop up and they'd find out you're a Christian, that's not allowed, and they'd drag you off to the courts, to the arena, other Christians would see it and go, if you're taking him, you got to take me too. They didn't gather in armed resistance. They didn't come up and fight. They heard the call. That they were bid to come and die. And they would go to the arenas where they'd be lit on fire, where they'd be fed to animals. And while the stands were there cheering and jeering, they would say things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If that happens once, you can ignore it. If it happens twice, you can ignore it. If it happens 10 times, you can still ignore it. But when it happens again and again and again and becomes a way of life for a people, you cannot deny it anymore. A second century church leader said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because he knew that the witness to the power And transformation of Christ comes when we heed his call to come and to die. Without Ananias, there is no Paul. And each of us in this room today have the capacity to be a Saul or a Paul. And the difference comes down to when you're laying in the dirt and God or life breaks you, Will you fight against him, or will you humble yourself to his will? But you know what? Each of us in this room has the capacity to be an Ananias as well. You know what? I read the story of Paul here, and it's like, why doesn't it happen to me? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not looking forward to, like, getting my corneas burned out. But have you ever found yourself in that place, just kind of going, God, why can't you appear to me in a vision? Why can't you knock me off a horse? Why can't you do something like this to me? Why can't I see some glimpse of the supernatural? I've been there. If you have been too, that's cool. But you know what? It's amazing how God works through the natural of Ananias alongside the supernatural to make his will come true. The conversion of Saul doesn't come down to just getting knocked down off a horse. It comes down to a guy named Ananias who is willing to heed the call, to risk, to even die. There's something we have here embedded in our DNA at FOF. I'd just like to share this one piece of it with you. It says this. Discipleship means radically turning our lives over to God. We believe we're loved by God and though we're broken, God yearns to redeem and restore every. Aspect of who we are. We believe the only way to truly discover the depths of what God is calling us to is by stepping out of our comfort zones and taking leaps of faith. Following Him is extreme. The life of faith is an adventure, and it is a journey of discovering and rediscovering a deeper life with Him every single day. Guys, what is God calling you to do? What vision are you having? What prompting are you getting? What are you hearing the voice of God say that's convicting you in your conscience or coming through the words that you're hearing? What is God calling you to do? Because I'll tell you, the world is alive with the supernatural power of God. He's out there and he's working and he's looking for Ananias to step alongside of him to complete his work in sometimes the most natural and straightforward ways. My prayer for you today is that you would embrace the life of a Paul. My prayer for you today is that you would embrace the call of an Ananias. And somehow in these two guys' stories, they would become a part of your own. We're going to commune today. And when Jesus invites us to this meal, he in essence invites us to walk as he did. He invites us to pick up a cross and to follow the path that he walked. I want to invite you to rise here today. And, you know, you, you, you come face to face with the weight or the significance of an Ananias, of a Saul turned Paul. It's no light thing God's calling us into, is it? just want to invite you for a few moments this morning, just maybe listen. Get your heart right with God. Give it to him. Let's just come to him and pray for a moment. Lord God, you died for us. You risked it all. You bid God's call to go and die. Through your crucifixion, you saved the world. You saved us. May we hear your call to partner with you. God, may we humble ourselves when we're face down in the dirt. May we follow the plans that you've laid out for us, no matter the risk, the cost, fear.